Dan, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Mary. And how are you? Have you got up to anything at all interesting recently? I feel like we're not doing that much these days. I actually, this weekend, went on a cycle into centre of town. I thought it'd be interesting to see what it was like without teams of people. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. It was nice to be on roads that weren't completely crowded with traffic. It was nice to see all the kind of historic landmarks without people everywhere blocking my view and that sort of thing. I was partly wondering if it might have been taken over by the pigeons or something. (laughs) Actually, you know what? I didn't really notice that many pigeons. So I'm not sure if they were all there hiding somewhere or what, but I did have a pigeon in my back garden two weeks ago. So I'm wondering whether actually the pigeons are all sort of going further afield to find their little scraps of food or something. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on Investment Uncut, we welcome back special guest, Matt Gibson, Head of Manager Research at LCP. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Mary. Nice to be here again. Welcome back, Matt. I think it'd be really helpful if you just remind the listeners about your role at LCP. So I'm Head of Manager Research at LCP, which means I'm responsible for making sure that we review all the managers that our clients are invested with and find new areas, both of asset classes and managers, which we can invest invest in or our clients can invest in and we can advise advise those clients on. So we run across about 30 or 40 different asset classes and we've got about 60 people who do research within the firm. Fantastic. And Matt, last time we spoke to you, you were telling us about the fact that you're a big runner outside the office. I think you were saying you were gearing up for a 100k race. What's the latest with that? Still happening? Still trading okay? Inevitably, that got cancelled. So that was meant to be in July, um, but they've rearranged it for next year. So I'm still hoping to do it in July 2021 now. But I've got some other things later in the year planned as well. So we'll see how those pan out. But uh, still trying to do some running in the the lockdown period. Yeah, not too bad. I live quite rurally, so I can get out and do some longish runs. Not going too far over Mr. Gave's half hour uh, recommendation. Good stuff. So Matt, today we're going to talk a lot about kind of markets and where we are and what opportunities there might be. But last time we spoke to you, I think it was early January. So right at the very start of Q1, we probably none of us expected quite so much to happen during Q1. And I guess probably it's sensible to first just have a look back performance over that quarter before we move on to think about where we go next. I won't ascribe any reasons to why the market's moved. I think we can all know that and don't really want to cover that today. I think that's for another time. But just in terms of what the markets have actually done, very briefly, so we saw equities start the year reasonably positively and up until the middle of February were up slightly. And then from the middle of February towards the end of March, return about, fell about 30%. Now, since then, they've recovered quite a lot and have bounced back around 20% such that they are now down around 10% year-to-date return. And that's global equities for a sterling investor? That is global equities, yes, for a sterling investor. In government bond markets, well, within the UK, bond prices have risen sharply or the yields on them have moved inversely, have fallen quite a lot. So we've seen some good returns there. And corporate bonds, so the, the lower risk end of that, the investment grade bonds, broadly flat over the year, give or take a bit. But the yield available over and above the government yield has obviously increased quite dramatically. But high yield bonds, 
the higher risk end of the corporate bond market. And they're down quite substantially, you know, 8-10% type levels year to date. And again, the spreads available, the excess return over the government bond markets have risen quite substantially there. And then on the quarter end, Matt, I suppose that quarter end came a little way into the rally, didn't it? So most asset classes saw their lows just a little bit before that. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, there's a fairly strong rally in the last week or two of March. And so we saw some pretty big gains. So the quarter end numbers aren't right at the bottom. Which is helpful for clients drawing a line at that point in time, I suppose. And so, Matt, what are some of the issues that you've noted as you've spoken to managers and talked about different strategies over these last few weeks? Well, we've got a number of opportunities that we've seen that managers have been telling us about, but I think come on to those in, in a second. If we start just giving a sort of big picture look at what's happened and what hasn't happened that we might have expected. So there's a few things that I think have gone well, which is probably worth pointing out. The first is that nothing has really failed horribly from an operational point of view. Am I surprised? I'm surprised it's quite a word, but I'm certainly relieved that that's been the case. And we've seen individuals have to separate work from home, a plethora of different financial services companies that are quite intrinsic to the way or important to the way that the financial markets work. So that's asset managers, custodians, fund administrators, and stock exchanges and people who are organizing the pipe work of the markets. And nothing's really fallen over. That's quite impressive, I think, for the financial services industry to be able to deal with that, particularly when you think that their business continuity plans, their disaster recovery plans, probably didn't envisage this sort of scenario in too much detail. They're probably focusing on more of a terrorist event where they were able to move wholesale all their staff from one office into another office. And this really isn't that situation. But still, things have been able to go on. So that's been quite good. It's good. And then a lot of the staff there are classified as key workers, aren't they? For some asset managers and those sort of people at stock exchanges. Yeah. So those sort of infrastructure bits that really are utility bits, I guess, in, within the financial services, then they have been classified so that they are able to, to travel and get into the office. And are most managers operating completely from home these days or sending a few people in? It varies a bit. Certainly the front office decision makers tend to be able to work from home without too much trouble. Some are more of the sort of middle and back office individuals might have to come in, particularly if they're trading or being able to, or in the IT type areas, then some people need to be physically present. Most managers have reported that the vast majority of their staff are working from home and have carried on quite okay. And they've also reported that custodians they're dealing with and the fund administrators have not had any issues at all. They're able to trade individual securities and they're able to reconcile their information with information held by other parties such that you know, accounts have been able to kept up to date and just things are generally working. That's a good positive note, I suppose, in all of this, that things are operationally working okay. So we should be pleased with that at least. So how about things like liquidity then, Matt? Well, one of the other positive things is that in the major markets, liquidity has been pretty good. So in large cap global equities or equities globally, the liquidity has been there. You've been able to buy and sell companies, stocks, without too much of a difference between the price you can buy at and the price you can sell at. So that's good for liquidity. Similarly, in government bonds, on the whole, we had a couple of days where it looked a bit shaky. But on the whole, the government bond markets have also been highly liquid and been able to trade there as well. So that was another good point for what's been going on. Within some of the markets, though, we have seen some liquidity issues where particularly that price between what you can buy at and what you can sell at, where it might normally be a fraction of a percent, has increased quite a lot, indicating that it's quite hard to find, particularly find a buyer if you're trying to sell a security. 
some particular markets, we've seen managers report that I just couldn't find a buyer at any price for this particular type of security. So their liquidity has been a bit shaky. Now, that tends to have been the higher risk end of the credit markets. So in high yield bonds or in some of the more esoteric areas like the asset-backed securities markets, where we've seen that happen particularly. Are there any other markets, Matt, that have sort of struggled to trade through this period? Well, property funds where you're holding illiquid assets within a fund have a real struggle. They, nearly all of them, have said, we have so little confidence in the value and able to put a value on the property that we are not confident enough to be able to allow you to trade the fund. And so they have suspended dealing on the funds. And if you're in those funds now, then you are, well, hopefully temporarily, short term temporarily, locked up that you can't exit it at the moment. So that's been unfortunate. And typically, what's the sort of wind out process from that position for a manager to then feel sufficient confidence and to start allowing dealing again? Well, the property markets particularly you know, rely on surveyors viewing the properties and assessing it and coming up with a price that they think is the right price if you were to be able to sell it on the market today. And so they're unlikely to be able to give that assessment of value until lockdown is over and they can get back out and look at the properties and people are trading similar properties and be able to do those surveys to be able to actually execute any deals. So we could be in this sort of situation at least until the lockdown is moderated a little bit. Right. It's not the first time those sort of suspensions have happened, is it? And I guess on the positive side, I believe that there are good examples of funds returning to operate normally after that happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. So many of the funds were suspended in 2016, just after the Brexit referendum for UK property, and they were able to reopen and do it. But the reason for the suspension is slightly different this time. It's not that they've seen a lot of investors trying to pull their money out and have been able to sell the properties to raise that cash quickly enough. This is that they just haven't got confidence in the value they can put on the properties. I think one thing that probably all of us do when we are faced with a period of financial difficulty is look back to previous periods. And I guess the biggest one we can all probably remember is the global financial crisis of sort of 2007-8-9. What have you noticed that's sort of similar or different to that crisis in this one? In that one, one of the first things to come under stress were cash funds. And particularly as people wanted to liquidate assets and get cash available in their bank accounts, the first thing they tried to sell were cash funds. And many of them broke the buck, as the phrase came known, which meant that they were expecting to be able to sell at $1 per unit and then weren't able to do that and had to settle for a lower price. And that was quite a big deal for the cash funds that had never really been seen before 08. But this time, the cash funds have broadly sailed through this without too much much of a struggle. That market has stayed quite liquid, and the sort of instruments that they hold within there have been able to trade and sell quite easily. So that's a positive sign. We did see one or two funds in the US where the underlying sponsor had to put in some money in order to keep that up. But that was just over a couple of days, very short, and seems to have relieved quite a lot since then. And do you think part of that is because funds labelled as cash funds these days actually do hold more cash-like investments, whereas perhaps back in 2008, there were some funds that were called cash, but actually when you looked under the bonnet, they weren't so cash-like. That's certainly been the case. Yes, absolutely. So the new rules came in between 08 and now where cash funds, as you say, had to hold things that really were highly liquid and could be sold very quickly into cash, whereas 
previously there were some things going on and holdings that they just couldn't sell and were longer dated and weren't going to mature for perhaps longer than we thought they were going to. So certainly a case. But it's also been the intervention of the central banks, particularly in that area. So the central banks have been playing in a number of different ways. But one of the things they've been doing is market interventions to increase liquidity. And by making cash available to banks, so banks can post particular assets to the central bank and get dollars, particularly the Fed's actions, and get dollars out. And their fairly quick reaction to what they saw were some stresses has really relieved that area. And they also set up other swap facilities with other central banks, such that even non-US banks could get dollars if they needed them as well. So that was a positive thing for the central banks generally to have done and to have kept markets liquid and turning over and not gumming up. So it's been very good. Have there been any particular nasty surprises out there, Matt, over the quarter, would you say, in terms of things performing different than what would be expected? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of negative performance generally, but things working out just different to how you would have thought. So one of the biggest areas we've seen is this fall in the price of oil. Now, that is partly related to the COVID-19 issues, but also partly just a bit of an argument between the Saudi Arabia and Russian authorities about how much oil they were going to produce and therefore control the price of the oil. And so we've seen huge falls in the price of oil, which has affected the oil companies quite a lot. So we've seen massive differentiation in, in equity return sectors across equity returns across the different sectors, and particularly the oil companies have fallen a reasonably large, large way. And that's been somewhat unexpected, I guess, but it was just a slightly different risk that they faced compared to the rest of the market. Yeah. And that's been particularly relevant for UK-based equity investors, I guess, right? Because the UK equity market, of course, relatively more weighted towards oil. Is that one reason you think why UK equities have done worse than global equities? Yes, absolutely. So UK equities are down around 20% year to date, whereas global equities to a sterling investor are down around 10%. And so, and that difference is quite a lot of that difference is down to that oil factor and the fact that the UK market is so heavily weighted to oil companies. And the other part of it, presumably, is, is due to currency, which for UK investors has kind of worked in your favor this time around, hasn't it? If you were unhedged, that is, and owned global dollar assets as a, as a sterling investor. Yeah, so sterling's weakened. So if you were holding non-sterling assets, dollar assets particularly, then yes, you've seen a bit of a boost to your return. So that has helped people who've been diversified globally without hedging the currency. And I guess we've sort of singled in on the oil industry, but there are lots of other industries that could be affected in a more long-term way by what's been going on recently. I guess, is it a bit too soon to know exactly which companies will sort of not make it through this period and which ones might do better as a result? Managers are saying that there's lots of time for this to play out. And it's partly just fundamentally which sectors are going to do well, which aren't going to do so well. I think that's becoming clearer. And in the absence of political intervention, I think it's pretty clear which sectors are going to be mostly affected and which aren't. So anything where you need to be physically present is having a short-term shocker, frankly. So you know, if you're an airline or is it entertainment, leisure, hotels, those sort of sectors have been hit very hard indeed. Things where you don't need to be physically present to be the consumer. So a lot of tech stocks have been pretty immune to much of this. Utilities have been fairly stable. Those sort of companies have been doing okay. What throws the equity markets around, though, is the political intervention. So will governments come in and rescue whole sectors or individual companies and give those returns a boost, which makes 
stock picking quite hard. You have to also be a political analyst in order to find those opportunities and assess them appropriately, which is, well, we'll see how that all plays out. But it's uh, interesting stories at the moment. Indeed. And of course, a lot of the bad news obviously gets baked into the price as well at any one point in time. So do you think you've seen managers repositioning to a large extent or are most managers still confident in the themes they had going into this or that some people really changed their or been able to change the portfolios as they've gone through? We've seen a bit of change from some managers. So some of the multi-asset managers who allocate between different asset classes have been changing their portfolios, but there's been a mix. Some have been taking the opportunity to buy riskier assets, thinking, you know, the market was down enough and we should, this now represents good value and we can move in and, and start purchasing stuff. Some have said, this is a really risky situation. The market is not pricing in sufficiently the downside here and have been selling riskier assets and moving more into cash. So as you'd expect, we see all sides of the market, both the buyers and the sellers, and we see all sorts of different stories. But it's been a mixed bag there. Within equities particularly, we haven't seen managers do a great deal, a few individual opportunities that they've been able to exploit, but most have been fairly happy with how their portfolios are positioned. We had a couple of managers say that they have changed some of the themes because of the expected political intervention, particularly around airlines, where maybe they were banking on some of the the smaller airlines going bust anyway, even before this started, and putting their money, investing into the the slightly larger and slightly less guest geared airlines. And now they say, well, we don't know which airlines are going to be rescued by governments. So this whole story doesn't work. So I'm selling and moving on, which is good discipline, a bit painful for them at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And how about value versus growth? How's that panning out at the moment? So value over the last two or three years has been underperforming growth by quite substantially. So, you know, value stocks, those that on an objective measure of price to earnings or price to book ratios look cheap. Growth stocks, those that are pricing in some sort of growth in the earnings and the profits. As I say, value has been underperforming. Within this period, over the first quarter of 2020, we've just seen even more of that. The growth stocks have been doing pretty well. And my take is it's not really because they are growth stocks. It just happens to be that those higher growing sectors are also those where you don't need to be physically present. So you've got the tech stocks in there. You've got quite a lot of the consumer services, online consumer services, Amazon, for example, and Netflix have done particularly well. And so they were pricing in a lot of growth anyway. And so they've done quite well. Whereas those slightly older school, older companies, older sectors, oils, to a certain extent, financials have not done as well. And they just happen to be value stocks. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because so the reason why those two have diverged over this particular quarter is nothing to do with financial markets, really, or how they should or do work. So then I guess on a forward looking basis, what does that really tell us about what will value versus growth be in the future? Because if we're still in this lockdown period, I guess there's no reason to think that trend wouldn't continue for some time. Yes. So we could see it carry on for a little bit longer. But yeah, who knows how much of that, how much of the bad news is already priced into the markets? Of course, value, even before this, value was historically cheap, wasn't it, by according to its own history. So I guess value just keeps getting cheaper and cheaper. So depending on your view, potentially more attractive or potentially more dangerous, depending on which way you look at it, I guess. Yeah, quite. Is it worth us moving on to sort of some of the opportunities you've been identifying from speaking to managers and looking at where markets are sitting today? Perfect. Yes. So got a few individual opportunities that we thought, thought I'd bring up here. First is, it's not really an investment opportunity as such, but just a 
a reminder, if you like, that rebalancing the portfolio tends to be a good strategy that works reasonably well over lots of time periods. So if you've got a strategic asset allocation in your portfolio, you've presumably set to have a diversified portfolio. Well, it's this quarter. What is the reason why you had a diversified portfolio? So different things act in different ways and it's protected you to some extent instead of just holding everything in equities or everything in the highest risk asset you could find. So now is really the time to consider rebalancing back into your strategic asset allocation and making sure that you keep those weights to equities, which presumably have fallen relative to everything else, up so that you can exploit that bounce back as and when it comes. I know we've seen some already, and if you haven't rebalanced already, but it's probably still not too late. We're probably 10% down. A number of my sort of schemes that I work with, or investors that I work with, feel nervous about the idea of rebalancing and having a policy is exactly why the policy is in place because it is a time when you feel nervous to make those moves. And I guess that almost the message is, yes, there might be further volatility, but actually sort of keeping a clear head and at least rebalancing some or a long way towards that strategic allocation ought to be the rational thing to do, even if you do see equities fall a bit from today before they then ultimately hopefully recover. That would be my view, yeah. If you've got the policy, you know, pithily there's a old portfolio managers saying, you know, plan the trade, trade the plan. And so if you've got the plan in place, just put it through. But as you say, you might consider that this is such an unusual circumstance that maybe you only go halfway or you only do a little bit. But there might be other situations where you, you might want to not want to do it as well. For example, if you're on course to reduce the risk in your portfolio over time, you know, particularly some DB pension schemes might be on path to de-risk over time. It might be that you just say, well, I'm just going to accelerate that de-risking and just do it today and avoid having to do those trading costs because you might do it in six months or 12 months time anyway. So that might be the way of doing it. I think the point you make there is often maybe an underappreciated one, actually, Matt, that in investing, you can always just do things partly and it still is a reasonable place to end up. So rather than sort of having a big argument or existential sort of analysis over whether you should rebalance or not, yeah, you can just rebalance halfway and it will still have a pretty decent effect. And it's something that maybe is a bit easier to agree on and just do. So rather than having to think in terms of all or nothing, just do part of it. And there are some areas where you may not want to rebalance at all. So those private markets where we've said the value is just shaky, no one really knows quite how much they're worth. It might be that you exclude that and say, well, I'm not going to buy or sell either those assets today because I just have no confidence in the price. If you're in a fund, you can't. But if there's some other way that you could do it, perhaps you still say, I'm just going to exclude those from my rebalancing for this quarter and come back to it you know, when we've got a bit, bit more clarity on how much it's actually worth. Yeah. I guess on the subject of illiquid assets, I guess those markets could be interesting at this point in time. Yeah, there's certainly opportunities there if you're prepared to take the risk. So buying the properties or the funds directly in the liquid markets is quite hard. They've either closed or you probably don't have much confidence in the price. But then, you know, there are some investors that need to raise cash and are selling their holdings in funds particularly. And if you can pick those up at a significant discount, then that may be reasonably high risk strategy, but that could be some interesting opportunity there to pick up holdings in funds at much reduced prices. That's interesting. So what are some of the other opportunities we're talking to clients at the moment about, Matt? Well, within the credit markets, there seem to be a lot of opportunities around various different sort of levels of risk and opportunity. So the first one is lower risk investment grade bonds. So the most secure of the corporate bond end of the market, the most secure end of the corporate bond market. We've seen some increases in yields there. 
and yield, sorry, increases in the spread to the return available over and above government bonds there. And so if you were considering an allocation, that looks like a reasonably good time to get into that market. Now, clearly there are, as we've said, different sectors and different companies affected differently by this. But these are quite low risk assets generally. And so as an asset class, it does look like the spread now available on those is an interesting opportunity. And I guess that's even if you allow for the idea of the spread increasing is because there's a perceived at least increased risk of default. And I suppose then what we're saying is the spread has increased sufficiently that even if you allow for some defaults, you should still expect a reasonable return. Yeah, it's balanced, right? The market is telling you that increase in defaults probability has increased or the default probability has increased. But yeah, it's been quite a reasonably sized increase in the return available as well. So high risk, high return, but it does look like an interesting opportunity at the moment. If we go into the higher risk end of that market, so in the lower credit rated securities within the corporate bond market, it's been an even larger increase in the spread available, the return over and above the government bonds. And some of those just look like they are priced uh, extremely attractively. We've seen there the liquidity has dried up. And so pricing is somewhat technical in the sense that they're just people who just need to sell and you can get the pick up those assets quite cheaply or apparently quite cheaply. As we've said, different sectors affected very differently, different parts of the market affected quite differently. So the high yield bond market, the fairly large issuance of bonds seems to be acting slightly differently to the, the loans market where the slightly slightly smaller typically issuance of floating rate loans. And again, slightly differently to the asset-backed securities market, which is a slightly more esoteric part of the market. But in all of those areas, we've seen some liquidity crunch and some difference in the way that they're pricing. And so given the spread of opportunities and the different sectors behaving differently and the different markets behaving slightly differently, this is quite hard to allocate into one of the best opportunities here. And it might be an area where you'd be considering having an active manager do that for you. So someone who can select those individual securities and individual credits that look the most attractive. And I guess selecting across different areas of that slightly higher risk credit market, so different types of bond holdings. Yes, quite. So picking not just within high yield, but within loans and within asset-backed securities as well. Are we talking globally there or are you focusing particularly on the US or Europe or is it pretty much similar? It's pretty similar. So I think globally, there's opportunities all over the place. The US is by far the largest market. So there's plenty to be more opportunities there. But in Europe and in the UK as well, we've seen those pricing changes have been quite dramatic and been quite different in different areas. And so it looks like there are some opportunities there. And then just put some numbers around it in the US in terms of the yields on those sort of bonds, they've increased by what sort of five or six percentage points, is it, since sort of earlier in the year? Yeah, around those. Some have gone out even more than that, though, in certain areas. You know, we've seen certain high-yield bonds be able to offering returns of 10% or more above government bonds. And so that's a, a huge increase. Now, that's a stress price. That tells you that the market is saying the company has got a reasonably high chance of going bust to that sort of level. And so you do need to be extremely careful and do a lot of assessment of the real opportunities and risks there. But it's that sort of level of price increase. In the US high yield market, I mean, there are quite a lot of sort of midsize oil dependent companies who are issuing there, right? So I'm guessing some of those might be these companies that are trading at the more distressed sort of levels. Yeah, quite. And as we said, you know, those sectors that are exposed to COVID-19 
and the lockdowns particularly hotels have come out quite a lot leisure industry companies those spreads have widened quite a lot and so it depends on the individual areas quite a lot so you're very much saying this is an actively managed kind of opportunity in in the higher risk credit space were you meaning in the lower risk credit you'd be happy with a more passive approach there or would you see that as an active as well I think it's less compelling to go active in the lower risk credit space. I think the size of the the increase in the spread is much lower and the companies are, or the securities are reasonably low risk that we've seen less differentiation in absolute terms. So I think it's the active story is probably more compelling in the higher risk end of this market. We've also seen within that some arguments to say that this is particularly interesting time not just because of COVID-19, because of the structure of the markets. We've had quite a lot of issuance over the last 10 years of new debt and almost a doubling in the size of the corporate bond market across the world. And so there's far more securities and paper that's available to trade. So that gives a more opportunity set. We've also seen a lot of companies be rated at that just inside the investment grade what's classically called the investment grade area. And so if they were, or some of them were to be downgraded, then potentially we've got a lot of managers that are meant to be, or a lot of funds that are meant to be holding investment grade, being forced to sell those bonds because they've fallen into that high yield territory and they're not allowed to hold high yield and not allowed to hold too much high yield. And again, if you've got the flexibility to be allocating, picking individual securities between those two bits, then perhaps you can pick up some cheap for sold assets as well. That's quite an interesting area. The so-called fallen angels, isn't that? I hear that expression used quite a lot to describe these bonds that have been downgraded or might be downgraded. Yeah. I think there's a slight element of overconfidence in this in the sense that actually there's not that many funds that are going to be forced to sell. And I think it's slightly overdone in some of the commentary. But I think certainly there is definitely going to be some sort of opportunity there. And it's whether you can find the right picker of the securities in order to be able to to exploit it properly and be able to move quickly enough as those come to market. I hear sort of two competing arguments on those. On the one hand, some people say, well, there's will be all this forced selling of them, so the prices will fall, so they're a good opportunity to buy. Other people will say, well, there's going to be all these new bonds joining the high yield market. And so how on earth is that market going to cope with them, which almost implies that you kind of want to sell them, right? So I suppose, as always in markets, two different arguments on the same thing. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. And we saw the index providers, some of the arbiters of what individual funds or individual portfolios can hold, actually delayed the rebalancing. So they didn't take out a load of fallen angels from the investment grade index and put it into the high yield index points in the quarter when their original rules said they should have done. But they just delayed that to see what's going on before implementing it, just to avoid that sort of liquidity crunch. Lots of machinations and moving parts. And it's, again, really hard to give a, an a single answer overview as to how what's going to happen in these areas. So I guess we've been talking a lot about the listed credit markets, but there are also probably opportunities in the less liquid private markets. Yeah, there are some opportunities there. There's certainly opportunities just moving certainly further down the risk spectrum. So where we've been talking about the bond markets and the loan and the debt markets generally so far, I've really meant those areas where you buy the bond and you expect that bond to recover quite substantially. There is the opportunity where Unfortunately, the company that issues their bond actually goes into some sort of administration or goes into bankruptcy. And at that point, the bondholders, the equity holder goes bust and the bondholder takes control of the company and refinances it so they can keep running and keep operating. 
And those opportunistic credit areas look quite compelling as well. We probably expect quite a lot of companies, unfortunately, to go into some sort of bankruptcy as the effects of COVID-19 and the lockdowns and the general economic downturn comes through. And so we've seen a lot of managers who exploit these sort of opportunities buy the bonds, expecting to turn into the equity holder or expecting some sort of refinancing or reinjection of capital from the equity holder. That Those sort of managers are raising a lot of capital at the moment and trying to drum up support for their funds. And it does look like an interesting area. There's, as we said, plenty of opportunities in those fallen angels and potentially plenty of opportunities in the more, even more distressed areas. And I guess the point here is that these aren't bad businesses. They're potentially very good businesses that perhaps because of COVID-19 are facing some significant short-term problems. So actually, these managers are sort of enabling the business to continue and recover from this difficulty. Yes. So they could just have a fairly short-term cash flow issue, which means that if they can't get a short-term loan from the bank, they just can't continue as they are and they need an injection of capital. And that might be a good thing for the bondholder or it might be a good thing for the other investors in the company. And it's certainly a good thing for other stakeholders in the company, employees and customers and suppliers, that these companies can carry on operating as they were to do that. And if it's an opportunity for the investors who've got some spare cash around as well, that's all well and good, I think. So these sort of return expectations, presumably even that little bit higher then than what you were saying from the sort of higher risk end of the credit would be expecting presumably an even higher return to compensate investors who I guess you're backing a tricky turnaround here, aren't you? You're backing a really tricky navigation of a really difficult period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is reasonably high risk portfolio and suitable size allocation is clearly appropriate here. But the returns you can expect can be well into the double digits for this sort of opportunity if it's done well. And other periods where we've seen stress after previous downturns economically, this has been a fantastic opportunity, fantastic time to be buying into these opportunistic credit type strategies and and getting a really good returns over the next few years. Now, the opportunity is quite illiquid. So many of the funds will be multi-year lockup type vehicles. And so you need to be prepared to stay in and ride the course of it. These funds also need a very different set of skills from your sort of listed market manager as well. So as you say, Dan, as you're going through some sort of bankruptcy event, then perhaps the skills you really need are those sort of legal skills in order to be able to fight the battles and get the control and the ownership rights that you were hoping for when you first bought into it. And and as always in private markets, these are very much actively managed portfolios, aren't they? Because even the sourcing of it and the identification of the deals and finding them is quite a skill in itself. Yeah, absolutely. There's no proxy index or something that you could point at here and say, this is how they work. These are all very individual deals and finding them and being in the right place at the right time to exploit it is absolutely crucial. And just quickly then, I suppose some of those areas have been popular areas of allocation over the last few years, certainly for institutional investors. I certainly know clients who've allocated to some of those sort of private markets credit. How are those portfolios faring, the ones that have already been deployed? Presuming there are some problematic sectors in there, as we've discussed in for other areas. Yes. So those slightly lower risk or what you hoped would be lower risk areas of private credit, they've been typically a lot of investors have been allocating over the last few years into that, looking for reasonable size returns. And this has been a tricky period, I think, for them. It's quite hard to say with any quantitative numbers exactly what's happened so far. We just the illiquid assets, we're pricing on the assets. And even the companies, their fundamental performance is not really available yet. But certainly some of the managers have been flagging to us that there are companies in our portfolio that 
we're concerned about and we're monitoring very closely and we're working out what the best thing to do is, which may involve you know, a lot of conversations with the equity owners. It may involve conversations with the company about injecting more capital into it in some other way. And so we're monitoring those situations for clients quite closely. The managers are monitoring the situations of the companies quite closely, and we shall just have to wait and see exactly how that pans out. And as we said, it's hard to know because with a lot of the government fiscal and intervention and the government loan schemes and grant schemes across Europe and across the world, it could be that they are able to survive, but only because of the intervention from governments. And, and those things, because they're privately held and privately valued, that performance pans out over a period of time, does it, as the operational performance of the companies comes through, rather than being a sort of a pricing shock that they experience that the value of it suddenly drops one week, is that? Yes. So if a company that you've loaned to does go into some sort of bankruptcy, they will have to have a, an assessment of the value of the, the loan that you've bought, and that could see some drawdown. But uh, in most cases, I expect that the company will continue to fight to stay alive and, and continue to pay out on its loan for as long as possible. And we won't really see any fall in the in the value, typically, of the loan and in the performance of the fund you know, for a while. We'll have to see how it pans out as the company continues to run and, and, and operates see what happens. But don't, don't be too negative there. There's plenty of good loans in those portfolios as well. And indications that we've seen from the managers are that the number of affected companies typically has been fairly low and they don't expect to take anything like a full loss on the loan. They expect to have some sort of recovery on, on even those fairly small number of positions that they're worried about. I think it's probably, yeah, I suppose my experience with those sorts of managers that I've got a couple of schemes that were looking to invest from sort of 2017 onwards and investing with managers that sort of held their hands up and said, we're not finding enough opportunities and they weren't just going to find any old opportunity. They just didn't call as much as we committed. And actually one of those managers in the last few weeks made an, an additional call for capital that we hadn't expected right at the end of the period they're allowed to. And they sort of said, look, we know we hadn't found good enough opportunities, but actually we're seeing some now. So I guess that's another sort of slightly good news story that they held back enough that they're now able to be fairly nimble and react to this market condition. Yeah. And one thing that strikes me whenever I've looked through the portfolios some of those managers hold is just the sheer diversity of the industry sectors you tend to find in those funds. I mean, you might find things like cruise lines and hotels, been very badly affected, but you also tend to find bio device companies, pharmaceutical companies, e-learning companies, software as a service companies, care homes, all sorts of things that could just have a completely different range of effects. So I guess it really just does depend on the individual manager and portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about kind of fixed income bond market opportunities. Is that because that's where all the opportunities are, Matt, or do you see opportunities in other areas like equities? We're seeing more opportunities in the fixed income markets or the debt and credit markets. Seeing less inequities, but still there's you know, some things there. The equity markets have bounced back very strongly from the lows generally. And so there just seems to be less opportunity now than you know maybe there was in the middle of March. You'd have to be a very nimble investor to be able to exploit that. As we've talked about value and growth, potentially there's an opportunity there if you're prepared to back value, which has been a good thing to do. Historically, it's always been an outperformer of growth stocks over time. There are you know, certain areas which you could take, some areas there that could be opportunities. So we've seen the differentiation in the return from different sectors. Undoubtedly, there's some an overreaction there in, in some of those sectors. I'm not sure many allocators will be prepared to take a particular sector bet. So Matt, you touched then on, you know, if you were a very nimble investor, you could have captured some of those equity, sort of the bottom of the equity market in mid-March. 
And I guess thinking about being a nimble investor, number one, you need the governance to be in place. But I guess number two, I've had conversations with some of my schemes that I work with on if we want to be nimble, maybe we use derivatives to get those positions very quickly. And I just wondered if you had views on sort of synthetic versus physical ways of accessing some of these markets. Yeah, I think so. A number of issues have arisen there. It's just um, so synthetic exposure means that you don't put up a great deal of capital of cash to invest in it, but you get the same exposure as though you had a larger amount invested and committed to it. And so you can use that to be able to take as much exposure, but hold a bit more in cash and available to exploit opportunities. And that can help in a number of different ways. One is offensively, as you say, Mary, if you have that sort of set up in place, when the opportunity does arise, then you've got the cash available to be able to take advantage of it and move quite quickly into the different areas. Okay, Matt. Well, that's been a really helpful, wide-ranging conversation. As we start to wrap up, you might be pleased to know we're going to spare you the usual lightning round this time. You did that for us before. But perhaps a recommendation. Is there anything you've read or watched recently that you'd recommend for listeners? Well, being stuck in lockdown, obviously, I've had to, some as everyone else, get onto the streaming services just to keep my mind off other things. And so I've been re-watching all the old BBC Spooks episodes as a sort of a massive box set. I hadn't realized quite how many series they'd done. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite entertaining to see some of those again. So I'd recommend that. It's always a good show. Nice. I didn't watch those the first time around, so I'll have to take you up on that. Matt, last time you were on with us, we asked you what you thought the most underappreciated thing about investing was. And given we've already asked you that, we thought we'd ask it in a different way this time. What do you think is the most underappreciated thing about recent market movements? So I think it's been underappreciated in the markets, quite the effect of ETFs, exchange traded funds on market moves. People have known for a long time that the ETF market is now huge. But I think it continues to surprise me how much people are using them as a source of instant liquidity, even when some of the underlying assets just aren't that liquid. And that can really throw the markets around as particularly people have been selling the ETFs that have held corporate bonds to find liquidity and find cash. And that has just caused quite a lot of ructions in the market prices of the underlying bonds and of the ETFs and of other areas of the market. And it's just, they're so big, so huge and used as such a huge source of liquidity by everyone that it's uh, it always surprises me that one. And is, is that a big difference to sort of a decade ago, would you say? We certainly saw a similar effect a decade ago. I think perhaps that was more in the equity markets and they seem to be larger there then, but they've grown massively since then as well. And so they're just, you know, even more a behemoth that can move markets around compared to 10 years ago. Great. Okay. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully you get to uh, keep up your running. Thanks so much indeed. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.